that'll do. That's pretty good. Open up to Exodus chapter 6 we're in today. Uh, I'm Tom. If I haven't had the pleasure of being able to meet you yet, or if you're visiting, uh, I'm the, the preaching pastor here, and it's my honor and privilege to go line by line through books of the Bible and, and unfold the gospel and the word of God for us. Uh, if you're looking for a church, I hope you feel very welcome and, uh, and uh, learn a little bit about us. We're Bible-loving, gospel-preaching Christians here. Amen. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, of course, you're so welcome. We're glad you're here. We're praying that you give your life to him and have your sins forgiven today in the power of the blood and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But to learn a little bit more about that, we're in Exodus chapter 6. Now, one of the, the, the key characters, uh, 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 Moses, has, has had a, a theme or a, a continual kind of a, a, a problem that's been surfacing. Every chapter, every week, every interaction that he has with God, we sort of see this insecurity come up that he's not confident that he's the one chosen for this. He's, he, he has all of these sorts of insecurities, uh, worries and concerns that come up that he keeps on voicing to the Lord. And what we see today... We're going to be reading from uh, chapter 6, verse uh, uh, 9, through to, uh, sorry, <coughs> no, the end of chapter uh, 6, verse 14, and uh, we'll be going on. But, but what happened at the end of last week is that, is that God came to Moses and he reiterated, though, though he had gone to, to Pharaoh, and though he had said what God told him to say, the people of God are, are commanded to leave. You have to let them go. Pharaoh had said no. He had tightened his grip on the slaves. He had increased the affliction of the slaves and started killing them off more and more so that the Israelites now did not see Moses and Aaron as their heroes, but as a curse to them, the, the, the cause of the increase of affliction. And so here's Moses and Aaron uh, uh, terribly disheartened, and God reappears to Moses in his prayer and reiterates the promises of salvation, the, the unconditional I will statements of God's gracious covenant. He reapplies them to Moses and says, I will be the God of these people. I am the Lord God Yahweh who is from beginning to end and I will save them according to the promises that I made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But it says in verse 9 of chapter 6, Moses spoke to the people but they did not listen to Moses. Because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So it's, it's quite a roller coaster. He, he had a down point. We thought he was going to come back to the Lord and just get slingshotted back into success. And yet he goes to them and yet again, they're rejecting him. And then he also, in verse 10, expresses his own lack of faith. Uh, the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to Yahweh, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How will Pharaoh listen to me? I'm of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So here's, here's Moses reiterating to the Lord his lack of confidence. And it's basically built on this premise the Israelites, my own people, who were once in my corner, now they are not listening to me. The logic will follow God that therefore Pharaoh, my enemy, the king over the slaves that I'm now demanding freedom for, he will not listen to me if the Israelites do not. Who am I? This is the, this is the gist of his insecurity. Who am I that I would be listened to by Pharaoh? And today we see God come in, in multiple ways through the genealogy. Yeah, we've got a genealogy to read today, one of the, the fun parts of Scripture, okay? This is where you really test your, your doctrine of tota scriptura, whether you read it all and love it all. Genealogy, through his empowerment of miracles and through his, uh, through his uh, reiteration of, 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 of God's commands, we're going to see God come in and re-secure, re, re-establish Moses as God's chosen servant. As, as Moses asks, who am I that they should listen and that Pharaoh should listen? God, in effect, says, you are my chosen one, you are my obedient servant, and you have my power with you. So let's look at uh, chapter 6 and verse 14, and this is the, the reading of the word of God, the only true living God. These are the heads of their fathers, houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok, Palu, Hezron and Kami, these are the clans of Reuben. 
Now, the, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, uh, uh, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, these are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations. Gershon, Kobath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. Now we start, we've gone through three of the sons of Israel. Now we get to the third, who is Levi, and we don't start listing the rest of the sons. We start going into Levi's own genealogy. Verse 17, the sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans, the sons of Kohath, Amram, Ishar, Hebron, and Uziah. If you're pregnant, like I know most of the church couples are, you're looking for names right here. <laughs> Uh, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mahli, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister. And she bore him Aaron and Moses. The years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Ishar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab, and the sister of, Abi uh, and the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of these are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Petuel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. Okay, I deserved an applause. That's all right. We'll keep going. Verse 26. These are Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord had said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am Yahweh. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to Yahweh, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? That's just recap. It's repeated now at the end of the genealogy. Chapter 7. And the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you as a God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I commanded you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies, my people, out of Egypt, uh, uh, the, sorry, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people and Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses, speaking of age here, Vic, was 80 years old, and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same act by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became servants. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, and still... Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. May God bless to us the reading of his own powerful and inerrant word in our midst this morning. By the genealogy, right, and this, was our, this is our first section of reading this morning. By the genealogy, we learn that Moses and, and then secondarily Aaron, who is his prophet and his older brother, what, what is being communicated to us in this section is that Moses is the chosen servant of God. Genealogies serve many different uh, purposes in Scripture. They're all over the place. A few of them that come, the, the, a few of the purposes for which genealogies are given, which come through even in this passage today, firstly, 
And this is for you to just remember next time you're reading your genealogies, uh, search for these meanings. One of them is to introduce someone's background, uh, a bit of a context about who they are uh, to the people who are reading. This, this situates them as a true member of the people group. And so hence Aaron and Moses, their genealogy goes all the way back up to Levi, the very son of Israel. So, so in other words, what they're hearing is the, the people of Israel hear the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. And remember, at the point that this is being written is, 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 is when they are in the desert. They've been saved from Egypt. And, and here they are, Moses and Aaron are their leaders. It's at this point that the context comes to them who are our leaders? This Moses and this Aaron who have been sent to speak to us and this genealogy shows to them they are true, full-blooded Israelites. They are, they are sons of Jacob who was later named Israel. They are the sons of Israel. The sons of Israel are in order, as we said, uh, up until Levi and, therefore, and then it goes straight into Levi's, uh, Levi's uh, own family. But there's a second, second reason that God often gives these genealogies. And that is also not just, to, not just to put the leader or the person, the main subject of the genealogies into context, but also to connect the person to the hearers and the readers. And so here what we have today is that God is telling the, the, the Israelites that, that these men are your brothers. By the way that he has is, he is so done this genealogy, coming right from the sons of Israel downwards, he has so listed it that, that there is not a single person in all of the land of Israel that does not have at least one common ancestor and family member to Aaron and Moses. So again, this is, this is binding the, the Israelites back to their leaders, uh, Moses and Aaron, by, by reminding them they're true Israelites, they're related to you, they're not others, they are not the enemy, they are in fact, one of you. A third reason that God gives genealogies is to highlight the fallen nature of family trees, right? Every family tree has some nuts in it, has some pretty rotten fruit. It, it's, it's the case in every genealogy in Scripture, and, and your family lines, my family lines, absolutely. You can go back, and you don't have to go many generations before you start finding immoral people or, or people that you didn't think really deserve a place in the Hall of Fame as a grandfather or a great-great-grandmother to the, to the great heroes of the Bible. We learn this in King David's genealogy. Just as in Jesus' genealogy, there is some real rotten fruit in that line. Uh, in this, uh, uh, sometimes they're listed there and they're just immoral sinners that God has graciously included to encourage the other immoral sinners. Sometimes, though, they're just people that you would think are outsiders, often, often Gentiles. And so we see this even, even in uh, the, the, the early uh, generations of what is listed today. Back in, uh, uh, let's find the verse so that, so that you can see it. Uh, the Canaanite woman is listed in verse 15. The son, the, 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 one of the men here is listed as the son of a Canaanite woman. So, so this is to remind the Israelites because, because we can get a little bit, a little bit too uh, uh, historical. Like we think of the Israelite nation as all pure blood. All of the people that came out of Egypt and all the people that lived in the land, they were, they were just full, true-blooded Israelites. And it just wasn't the case at all. The people that, that, go, out of Is that go out of Egypt, we're going to see soon, uh, the, the, I believe it's chapter 12 tells us, they go out a mixed multitude. Egyptians go with them. Other slaves go with them. All sorts of mixed nationalities go in them to form this body that is the, the sons of Israel. And so they're being reminded here, though, though yes, the Moses and Aaron are yours and you're all full-blooded Israelites, and yet remember that not the entire line of Israel is this pure, clean Jewish bloodline. <coughs> we remember that King David's grandmother was Ruth. His great-grandmother was, was Ruth, who was a Moabite. We remember that in Jesus' genealogy, he shares David's uh, great-grandmother. <clears throat> However, in, the, uh, uh, in this situation, we also see a bit of a shady... Look at verse 20. This is one of the, the reasons that genealogies are given, is just to, just to be very honest and frank about some of the shady things that have ha happened in family pasts. And in verse 20, Moses' father, Amran, godly man that he was, the Levite, went and took for himself... His father's sister, old Aunt Jochebed, she made a great apple pie and he decided to put a ring on her finger. Uh, now, now, we might read that and go, just hang on. 
gag a little bit, come back to the text. Some commentators have, have sort of looked at that and go, I think the word aunt was written down wrong and the scribes meant sister. That's not a good argument. That's just trying to help our own stomach. No, this guy married his auntie. Let's remember, the ages are all over the place. So, so his auntie may well have been younger than him. Can't promise that, but let's, uh, let's, let's, let's uh, poise that as a possibility. But, but, but maybe even more biblically, your argument is that's a sin. They're commanded in this very book that you are not allowed to take for yourself a direct relative. You're not allowed to marry your father's sister. That's a law, but it is not a law at the point of Amran's taking his wife. A law has to be given, spoken by God, either in the conscience or or in the word of God. A law has to be given for for the, the act of breaking it to be considered a transgression. The book of Romans tells us this. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. I mean, let's let's go all the way back to Adam and Eve's kids. Who were who were they marrying? All right. Think about that. That's often used as a bit of an argument, like your creationism, it's so wrong because who are the children marrying? I'm like, the fact that it's a bit gross for us is not a logical argument against the biblical account of creation. It was different back then in the sense of uh, the, the gene pool being less shallow. It was not yet a law. It would become a law in order to protect and uh, purify the, the family lines. And yet at this point, not a problem, but it's just there. It's right there. He married his auntie. That's in the genealogy. Family trees are a little bit warped, filled with all sorts of nuts. Verse uh, number four. One of the reasons that God gives us genealogies is to bring the story into the present day. It's to sort of, for the, for the modern day readers in, who, were, who came out of, Israel, uh, out of Egypt, the Israelites, they're hearing this enormous genealogy and it's going to plant, it's going to end in their own day. So uh, one of the people that he lists here is Korah and the Korahites. Now, now that's listed because for the people who are, who are here listening to the book of Exodus being read to them for the first time, they know Korah. They know the sons of Korah. The, the Korah, uh, Korah and, and the people around him are the people who rebelled against Moses because they claimed we're cousins to Moses. We're on the same line as Moses from the from the from the patriarchs. So we have a we have I, I as Korah have a have a genuine ability to lead just as much as him. And in his rebellion, in his egalitarianism, claiming that there should not be hierarchy, you know, who's Moses? Well, Moses was God's chosen servant. And for standing up and blaspheming God by calling down God's chosen anointed servant, Korah was destroyed in that rebellion. We read that in the book of Numbers. Or or another person that is uh, 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 listed here is, in fact, Phinehas. Phinehas is, is a guy who is, he is, in the, in the cu- couple of uh, books that make up the, the Pentateuch, he is, he's quite a hero. He's a, he's a boss. He gets to have extremely uh, privileged uh, responsibilities in the temple. He's, he's favored. He's blessed. All these things. And one of the things that we see him do in modern nomenclature, we call this guy based, right? He is, he's an absolute champion for the Lord. And, and one, at, at one point, now this is in the future, but remember, for the people receiving the book of Exodus for the first time, this is their modern day. They hear listed in this genealogy, Phinehas, they're looking around, they're all nodding, yeah, we, we know Phinehas. Oh yeah, we love that guy. Because he was the man who when the Moabites and the Israelites were committing fornication and idolatry on the border of the land of Moab, he took a, and God was sending a pestilence and a plague to punish them and his wrath was burning and the people were lamenting for their sins and through the pews, like imagine it now, Somebody just stands up in the middle of the service, goes and grabs somebody else's wife. They, they sort of wiggle off through the pews and walk while you're all praying and singing to the Lord. And, and then in the back, they go and do immoral acts. That's, that's what happens. Now, he didn't stand around awkward like the rest of the people did. He went and grabbed himself a holy spear for the Lord. And it says that he drove them both through, through both of their bellies. Now, you know, what do you have to be doing if in one shot you can get both people's bellies? You're pretty close, all right? They're doing the horizontal tango. And here's here's Phinehas. He's killed him, and it averts averts the wrath of the Lord. Now, again, we read it, and we go, that's that's pretty politically incorrect. That's that's pretty unreal. Should we we really nod and amen that? And yes, that was the the task of the holy men of God to, to protect the people from such things as sin. And so this man commits himself to spiritual suicide, and Phinehas, in the name of God, simply finishes the job. In other words, we read this genealogy and it feels so disconnected for us 
because we just don't know our Bibles as well as we ought to. We're supposed to read names like that and go, oh, I see. This is, this is connecting it all to the much larger story and all of the other interconnected stories that I know in the Bible. And that's, that's really one of the uh, other reasons, that genealogies connect one story with the larger story of the Bible. You can go back now and read, read Genesis. And wherever you see Jacob come up, you're knowing, oh, Jacob, I, I, this is connected by this way, by this many generations to the Exodus generation. <clears throat> uh, Aaron's wife, Aminadab, it says here that she was the... Uh, uh, sorry, not Aminadab, that's a guy. Aaron's wife was taken from, and we see this uh, in verse 20, he took as his wife Jochebed, and she was the, uh, sorry, I've, I've, uh, I'm way out. This is down a bit. Hey, hey, wall, wall, wall. I got this. All right, verse 23, all right. The daughter of Aminadab and the sister of Nashon. Now we go, how many other people, thank you, how many other people in this lineage are we hearing the brother and the sister and the son? How many other people? Well, not everybody. And maybe they read this and they didn't make a, a big connection in their day, but we will notice those two names if you go and read the genealogies in the New Testament for the Lord Jesus Christ. These two people, Aminadab and Nashon, were in fact Judahites. They were, they were sons of the tribe of Judah. They would, be, they would be the ancestors of the king that would come and, and greatly outshine the works of Moses. They were, they were the ancestors of Jesus Christ himself. And this is what, this is what the genealogies do. They, they connect this, this many-threaded story in the Bible and bring them all to connect as one great tale of what God is doing for redemption in humanity. These, these genealogies are, are glorious. But there is one final reason we'll look at here before we move on. And this is that genealogies show, and especially this one, highlight Moses and Aaron as God's chosen servants. In verse 20, we read that, that Amram, his father, was a Levite who took for himself Jochebed, who was his father's sister, meaning, meaning that Moses and Aaron are born to a Levitical father and a Levitical mother. Now, if that doesn't make a whole bunch of sense for you, and I don't blame you, it's, it's that the Levites were the chosen race, to, uh, the, the chosen tribe to be the priests and high priests within the service of the tabernacle and the temple. They had the unique privilege of not getting land, not getting, not getting their own uh, cities and whatnot, but rather being holy unto the Lord in these holy cities and being servants of God in worship. So... If we think now of Moses, the, the question arising, who's this guy that he is the leader? Maybe Moses asking of himself, who am I, Lord, that they would ask and, and uh, listen to me and, and obey what I say? Who, who will be Pharaoh to listen to me? Who am I? Here's God saying, you're a priestly chosen servant. You, you are one that has a unique privilege and capacity to be near me and, and to access my presence. But furthermore, he's also a prophet. Moses is a priest line. He is a prophet because he's been spoken to by God. This makes him a uniquely chosen, uniquely fit person to come and do the work of God. And so verse 26 and 27, recap, this, the, the, recap it all by saying this. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. It, it, it comes down to a point here that we're supposed to see. This, this is all highlighting that Moses is the chosen servant of God for this very moment to rescue Israel from Egypt. The chosen one from a chosen line and a part of a much bigger story. We can go on. The second thing that we're going to see in, in verse 28 and onwards is that Moses was also, the, and the reason he could be confident was because all he was required to do was be God's obedient servant. Why should the people listen to him? Who is he? He is God's obedient servant. Look at verse 28. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land, the Lord said to Moses, I'm the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, I am the Lord. Uh, sorry, tell Moses, king of Egypt, that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, how am I of uncircumcised lips to be listened to by Pharaoh? 
Verse 1 of chapter 7, the Lord said to him, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I commanded you. This is is the, the, the reiteration that God's giving him. You are way overthinking this task, Moses. You've got one job. Use your pegs, walk, open your mouth, don't come up with anything. He has not been asked to be clever, to be, to be engaging, to be relevant, to be, to be cool, to be imposing, to be, to be intimidating. He doesn't even have to come up with his own speech. Literally all his job is to do is to walk in, whisper words to Aaron, and Aaron simply repeat verbatim what God told to Moses into the mouth of Pharaoh. Now, now then they get, well, well, what about the results? What then do we do? No, God's told them. It's going to fail. Moses, Pharaoh's not going to listen. Aaron, Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. He's going to harden his heart. That's not the point. All your job is, is to be bearers of my word. How quickly the church falls into this same same mistake. We want to be relevant. And we want to reach the people. We want to to bring them in. We want to lead the sort of, the move of God. and, And how can we be clever? How can we be relevant? How can we do things in such a way that is cool and and engaging and and keep the people coming on in? Anything, it seems, anything other than simply speak the words that God has given us. You want to know the definition of folly? You sit in on a church leaders meeting who are trying to figure out how to be relevant to the culture. The idiocy that has come up, the, the things that they invent in order to try, you know, is it the pastor's clothing? Is it, is it, how do we entertain the people? Do we have the sermon series based on the hit movies that have just come out? They're smoothing over the hard parts of scripture. They, they make it all about acceptance and inclusion and love. The, the sacraments are mistreated. They're thrown out the window, maybe entirely neglected. Anything other than the Bible and all that it says. They'll try literally anything else. But the key The key to a faithful church is simply this. Get back to the word that God gave us. You don't need to. You know how crushing the weight is? If it's up to you, how clever you have to be. How how, how silly, how how novel. You have to keep on coming. But friends, if we just realize this, that God has invested his word as that, as the deposit given to us, to be that which is spoken to the salvation of souls, to the growing of the church, to the extending of the kingdom. How simple the task. Not easy, but terribly, terribly simple. Would God not, not, not grab his bride today and simply remind her, Get back. Simply speak the words that I gave to you. The Bible, I've heard it said, the Bible is timeless, so it is always timely. It always has the words for the moment. It always has what will speak into our culture. It will always be entirely and infinitely relevant because it is a timeless book spoken from heaven by God for all time. So, with Moses. What confidence can he have of any mission success? Well, none if he abandons the words given to him by God. But every confidence if he simply speaks the words given to him. And it is actually promised with success. Uh, Immediate apparent failure, Pharaoh won't listen, but ultimate long-term success. Look Look at the end of verse 2. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I thought, and though I multiply signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies, the, the people of the, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. This is what God is is promising to him as as verse 6 goes. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord had commanded them. That was their secret. It was simple obedience. Verse 7. Now, Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Did you notice all of the I wills again? God in this section is not saying, Moses, you're going to do this, and here's all the amazing things that you're going to come up with, or if you guys do this, then I'll make good. He simply says, I will. This is what is going to happen. Pharaoh will be hard, but I will be strong, and I will destroy their, their armies. I will destroy all things that are set up against me. It is God's fight. Moses is being told very clearly, get out of that way. 
how God loves to humble his servants as long as they think they have anything to offer in the fight of God. He just, he just eradicates any self-confidence that Moses could have. He gets rid of all of the, 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 the self-pride and self-sufficiency in his church, in his preachers, in his missionaries, in any of his servants, because we are useless as long as we think something of ourselves. He's God. Moses is almost, almost inactive. He's, he's just going to go as a puppet, repeat his words, God will be doing the fight. Is it a fight? Absolutely. Does God use his people in his fights? Absolutely. Is it God's fight? Yes. Will he use his people in his own fight? Absolutely. In, in verse 26 of chapter 6 and in verse 4 of chapter 7, our, our versions might read hosts. That God is saying, I'm going to bring out of Egypt my people Israel by their hosts. But that same word is, is more or just as accurately translated as armies. The, the, the colonnades of the people in their, in their groups, the fighting armies. God calls his people the armory, the, 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 the soldiers. I will bring them out as soldiers. God loves to speak of his own people with warfare language in order to uh, bolster our security and our confidence and our urgency on the missions that God gives to us. Does it become our fight because we're involved? It's our war and the victory rests on us ultimately? No. It remains God's fight, even though he involves his people. He will strike Egypt, he says. He will rescue his children. He will bring them out of slavery. God's armies, right, picture it. Picture what the armies of God are actually going to physically look like. <laughs> Slaved, uh, hungry, skinny, hard-worked, scars all over their back. They don't own many clothes, half-naked, Right? Not wealthy, not, not running out with, with camels by the, by the hundreds and their own, their own swords or anything like that. The Egyptians end up giving them a bunch of riches. Like the armies of God, though we, we might feel like that's a, that's a big impressive name to give them, they are in fact very, very weak. They're ex-slaves. They're old men. They are, they, are, they are people that have been driven down to the point of weakness, almost to death. They're children. They're, they're very many women. I mean, and, and then who are their generals? The seven recaps and the generals leading the men, leading the armies of God. They are 80 years old and 83 years old when they went in and picked this fight for God. Now, I know before anybody puts your hand up, 80 is not that old. Sure, sure. Uh, and, and we're not, not going to say that 80 is some decrepit end of the line. No, no, no. I've, I've known some pretty, I've known 80-year-olds, I'll tell you this, that can outrun me on the 5K. They do 15Ks in the morning, and I'm, I'm pretty rough getting out of bed. I acknowledge that 80 is, is not necessarily dead, but this is the point that is being made. They're, they're pretty old. I mean, when's the, when's the last time any of you 80-year-olds or you know somebody 80-year-old who played a game of rugby? Chess, maybe. And I'm not, I'm not talking Velcro rugby, like full contact rugby. Maybe soccer. Not full contact rugby, right? It's, it, it, it's not an impressive thing to say. And the generals of the armies of God, 80 and 83 years old. That, that's the vibe that we're supposed to be sort of reading from here is, is God's got this fight. He has secured his people, but his people are extremely weak in and of themselves. God, even today, he... He wins his own battles. He wins and fights his own battles. The task of the Great Commission of the church is ultimately his fight. It is ultimately the task given to Jesus in order to secure victory for the gospel in the world. And yet, he uses his people in his fight as his armies. As long as we know that we have no strength in and of ourselves, then we are the armies of God, secured and empowered, and sure that victory will be ours. Now, our only weaponry is exactly the weaponry that we see was key to Moses and Aaron. We, we saw it in verse 2. We see it recapped in verse 6. This is the only armory, the only uh, a weapon that we have in the warfare for God. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Obedience to the words of God, that is what makes a strong church. Ravenhill, one of the Tremendous preacher, a prayer, Ravenhill of the last century. He said this, One of these days, 
A simple soul will simply come and pick up the book of God, read it, and believe it. And then the rest of us will be embarrassed. One of these days, somebody will simply read the Bible, actually believe the promises, commit themselves to simple, unadulterated obedience, and put the rest of us to embarrassing shame. May we pray that God raises up such leaders for the church today to know that we are not perfect, we are not strong, we are not wealthy, but those who are the most committed to the word, and that church which is confident in the mission that God has granted to us, to see souls rescued from hell, to see God's children rescued from slavery. It is that church who, has, who dares to have the confidence in such a mission. It is that church that God will empower, that God will use, though they be of old age, of weakness, and in poverty. Those churches who simply do just as the Lord commanded, that church will see God's victory. And thirdly, we see Moses' Moses' confidence be given to him by the Lord in this. He's asked, who am I? Who am I that Pharaoh will listen? He says, you are my chosen servant of a, of a specific line. Secondly, he has said, you are, you are the, the one who is simply needing to be obedient. And thirdly, he is the servant that God has given his power. Look at verse 8 and 9. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves, work some kind of miracle. Then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a servant. Miraculous power that God had endued upon Moses and Aaron was going to be the sign to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, to the Israelites, and in fact to Moses and Aaron themselves that God was with them. This is why God had given them the miraculous powers. We, uh, sometimes, as we, we studied this a couple of weeks ago, sometimes God uses those miracles to simply be declarative. I am God. These are my servants. You are an enemy. Sometimes, sometimes these miracles are, in fact, to overcome an actual obstacle, like the opening of the Red Sea so that they might be able to escape. But regardless, the, the message today in what is kind of the first of the 10 plagues, if we stretch it to 11, 11 signs of God's power against Egypt, this is the first one today. Moses' confidence needs to be in the fact that God has given his chosen servant a portion of divine power. He has invested his power into an instrument in Moses' hands, which is the staff of God. Where has God invested his miraculous, wondrous, life and death-giving power to his church? Have, have you ever been tempted? It's a temptation. It's wrong. It's erroneous. It's a mistake. If ever you've thought this, you read the Bible, you read these accounts and you think, wouldn't it just be great? Wouldn't it be amazing? to live in a day when God was miraculously, powerfully working. That'd be cool. Or maybe, maybe the temptation gets the better of you and you, you tend to think and you even align yourself with this theological tradition that says, no, in fact, he has. He does still do these amazing miracles. And so in the healing and in the exorcisms and in the, in the glory clouds and in the people falling down, that is, there is, in fact, still God's miraculous power on display in the church. But that's a mistake. Is that where God has invested his power to accomplish his mission? What did the apostle Paul say? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Do you think Moses ever felt ashamed of the staff, like picture it, he's, he's got zero swords, no standing army, here he is against Egypt, their armies, their chariots, their horses, if you believe some guys, the, the aliens building the pyramids, like they got, quite a, they got quite an army here, okay, laser beams, what have they got? And here's Moses, and he's got a stick, a stick, you've heard of bringing a knife to a gunfight, this, this is bringing a stick to a tank fight. This is all he's got. 
This is the simple little thing that God has invested his power into. Whenever he brought it out in the face of Pharaoh, do you think he got mocked? Do you think sort of God goes, oh, that's, that's real scary. That's, that's, a, that's a good weapon you got there, little Moses. Did you make that yourself? You break that off a little twig next to your clubhouse? Here's, here's Moses, and he's just standing with one stick in his hand. But the power is the fact that God has invested in that staff his own redemptive, saving power for his purposes. So it is with the church of God. As she's been sent out, and we look on our opposition, political entities, totalitarian tyrants, enemies, the uh, uh, demonically empowered uh, false religions, thousands of people groups to convert the, the, the strength of sin that enslaves people and has such a, such, a, such a taste that keeps them going back to it. I mean, what is the power that the church has been given to be able to overcome the power of every one of our enemies? It is the power of God invested in the preached gospel. Mero, fair, try again. Moses. Moses had no power, had no tool, had no instrument except for that which God had given to him. He was, he was not allowed to go in of his own strength to do his own thing with that staff, but, but he was commanded to do as God commanded him with it and so with the church. Well, we have no other strength, no other power but the preaching of the gospel, which is the ability to take souls out of death, to take souls out of the grave and give them new life in the Lord Jesus, to, to break the bondage of sin and shame and make them children of God, filled with his spirit. There is no power given to the church like the preaching of the gospel. It is the power given unto us. We need not be clever we need not be ashamed of, of our weakness. We need not to, 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 grow, to grow fearful in the face of our enemies, but rather trust in God. This is our power. We have no relevance. We have no power, success, no chance outside of our commitment to and proclamation of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ in our place, his resurrection and his enthronement at God's right hand. Adoniram Judson was a missionary to, to Burma, and he was... He's, he, he, in his memoirs, he, he, he was preaching to these Burmese, these, these Buddhists, who, who, who as he's, he's explaining the power of the immortal being who has made all these things. And listen to what he says. That mighty being who heaped up these craggy rocks and reared these stupendous mountains and poured out these streams of water in all directions and scattered immortal human souls throughout these deserts, he is present by the influence of his Holy Spirit and accompanies the sound of the gospel with converting, sanctifying power. This same God who parts the Red Sea, this same God is in our midst and present with the church and accompanies the preaching of the gospel with his Holy Spirit to sanctify us, to bring us further into our righteous living and to save souls headed for hell. This is the power of the church. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 tells us that in their obedience, Moses and Aaron went before Pharaoh. They did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Now, a cool little thing, reading this in the commentaries this week. That word is not the normal word for snake, nor the normal word for cobra. It is the normal word for crocodile. All right? As an Aussie... I'm picturing Aaron here in his khakis, in his Akubra, wrestling this thing. Right, this, is, this is the Steve Irwin apostle that I'm imagining. Uh, but, but here's this word, could be crocodile, because, the, because one of the highest gods that the Egyptians worshipped was the god of the, god of the, the crocodile who gave life and, and all these other things. Now, because of the use of the word later in the story that is definitely referring to a snake, we know it's not crocodile, it's snake, but, but it's this powerful snake. It's this serpent. This, so, sorry, it's not the crocodile. I wish it was. But here it is, a serpent. Aaron throws down his staff. It turns into the serpent. And we see that by the demonic power of the magicians, the demonic power of this false religion, the, their own gods, the Egyptian gods empowered the magicians those gods were truly and nothing more than demons with masks on, trying to take for themselves the glory that belonged to God alone. And their servants were able to mimic, mimic this, this miracle. But what does God do? As the enemies pretend their own power in verse 12 and 13, this becomes a parable. This scene right here becomes a parable for the rest of the book of Exodus. 12 and 13. 
Each man cast down his own staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staff. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. At this point, the magicians of Egypt do their miracles, but God swallowed them up by Aaron's staff. This is a parable for the rest of the story. Because what does it say at the end of, of, of Exodus 15 when, 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 when Pharaoh's armies chase down the Israelites into the Red Sea? It says that the Red Sea has swallowed them up. Egypt and his armies. This is, this is so offensive to Pharaoh right in his face. Remember what is on his head? A, serp, a cobra on his headdress to show the divine snakely serpentine power that was his. And, and so this scenery of, of a snake eating the other snake, this is the equivalent of walking straight into the Oval Office of America and burning the flag. One commentator said, this is like taking a bald eagle and wringing its neck and throwing it on the president's desk. I won't mention that. That's far too graphic for us today. It's like, it's like walking into the CCP in China and, and defacing the statue of Mao right in front of Xi Jinping. Right? This is so offensive right in his office, right in the holy place of the Egyptians, swallowing up these snakes. But it was sending a very strong message. The, we read the, the godly line the genealogy of God's children that brings us to Moses and Aaron. And, 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 and so Moses and Aaron are these representatives of God's people, the godly line. Over this side, we have Pharaoh, who is a representative of the snake's lineage, of the serpent's sons and genealogy that we, that we read about in Genesis 3, that, that the son of a woman will come. The, the righteous line will bring forth a savior uh, that, will, that will destroy and stamp on the head of the serpent. And here's Pharaoh as a representative of the serpentine bloodline who is opposing the people of God. But God's people... His purposes, his children will be rescued by God's chosen servant. See the imagery here. God's people would be rescued by God's chosen servant, swallowing up the power of the enemy in victory, the son of the serpent. It is just so easy today as we, as we bring this to a close to point ourselves to see Jesus Christ shining through these pages. To see Jesus Christ as, as pictured and foreshadowed in these pages. Just as Moses was, Jesus also was God's chosen one. At the end of a very long genealogy, he was born of Judah, not of Levi, because his priesthood came from heaven, but he was born from Judah, which was the kingly line so that he could rule God's people and be born as our savior. Secondly, just as Moses was commanded to do all that God commanded him, so Jesus was sent to obey all that God had commanded. And he came and he spoke everything that God had given to him. And he came and he did everything that the law commanded. That was the perfectly obedient Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And thirdly, just as Moses was empowered with miracles, so Jesus was empowered with the Holy Spirit to do mighty miracles, to, to prove that God was with him, to prove that God had chosen him, to prove that he was the great prophet the great priest, the great king come for the salvation of God's people from their sins. And just as Moses and Aaron's staff swallowed up the other snakes in victory, so Jesus came to be the one who would crush the head of the serpent in victory. He himself, we are told from the prophecy in Genesis 3 and the accounts in the Gospels that Jesus, though he came to destroy the enemy, would himself be wounded. He did come. He was taken and arrested and thrown onto the Roman cross and beaten and whipped and mocked and spat upon, beard plucked out. He was mistreated and yet he told us, no one takes my life, I'm giving it. Willingly Jesus came. Willingly Jesus suffered under the wrath of God and died so that our sins could be counted to him and our sins could be buried in a finished payment. But what did Jesus do then? laying under the power of death, that, that power, that enemy that would destroy all of God's people unless there was an atonement, that enemy that had destroyed and killed everybody that had ever lived, that great enemy of death after it had swallowed Jesus whole by his glorious and triumphant resurrection, he swallowed death whole and left it dead in its own death, dead 
Death is dead in the grave of the Lord Jesus Christ, in that shallow, hollow grave in Jerusalem. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. To everybody who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, even if today is the first day you've heard his name, if today is the first day you've ever heard of the gospel of Jesus, if you trust in him, he will save you. There is no sins that can condemn you. There is no enemy that will destroy you. There is no power that will keep you from God's salvation and eternal life. Death is powerless. Your sin is established as as paid for and Satan has no grip on you. Today, repent of your sins. Turn away from those things that you've given yourself to over and over and over again and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one true, chosen, empowered servant of God. And church, church, never for a moment worry that God's purposes in the world will be swallowed up by the enemies. He will be victorious to save his people. Let's pray. God, as Moses was driven to pray, as Moses was driven to hopelessness, he was, he was driven to pray because he knew there was nothing he could do. His, his hope in himself and his, his own cleverness and initiative had run dry. And I pray, Lord God, that as a church, our own, our own trust, our own pride, our own self-sufficiency or thoughts of our own innovative acts would simply run dry as we would know that we are, we are, we are old from sin. We are aged with powerlessness. We are sl- former slaves. We have nothing in and of ourselves to boast of or to bring about a victory for the gospel, but we humble ourselves and say, Lord God, would you please make good on your promises? Would you please use us as your armies as we humble ourselves to obey your law and preach your gospel? Father God, would you give us as a church no hope, no no power, no confidence except for the preaching of the gospel in clarity? And God, for us as individual souls, who know that one day we will face judgment, who know that that we have lived lives filled with sin that are powerful and sufficient to condemn us forever. Lord God, would we find in Jesus Christ his death in our place, his resurrection, triumphing over death, would we find there our confidence that we have no other hope, we have no other plea except for Jesus, that he died and that he died for me. Father God, would that, be, would that be our whole life, our whole obsession? And may, may those who are still enslaved to sin today, those who have maybe come with a family member, maybe, maybe come for the first time with a friend or, or who have been going to church for years and years but never known themselves to be in the Lord Jesus truly and savingly today, would you save them from their sins? Would you give them that simple rest to trust in Jesus to save them? And Lord God, the confidence that you will sort out everything else. They need not worry, but trust in Jesus for salvation today. We know not when we will die. Father God, would you give us that faith that comes from a new heart to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything is for your glory, and so we pray to that end to that end today, God, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.